Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. I'm your host, Nick Cheesman, a member of the Institute for Advanced Study, Princeton. Today I'm talking with Samson Lim, who is an assistant professor in history at the Singapore University of Technology and Design, about his 2016 book, Sayam's New Detectives, Visualizing Crime and Conspiracy in Modern Thailand, published by the University of Hawaii Press. Samson, thanks for writing a great book, and thanks also for joining us to talk about it. No, thank you uh, very much, Nick, for having me on the podcast. I think this is a, a great opportunity to talk more about the work and hopefully get um, people interested in, in reading more and learning more about um, uh, detective practices. Well, uh, perhaps you can start with telling us what got you interested in those practices and specifically in the visualization of crime and policing in Thailand, uh, hitherto Siam. Right. Um, so this actually, this project started um, quite a while ago when I first started thinking about going back to graduate school, actually. I used to work in here in Singapore, where I'm, I'm talking to you right now, and then also in Bangkok, but in a completely different field. I was doing uh, urban development and real estate-related uh, work. And so any, I think anybody who spent a lot of time in the in Thailand, uh, in Bangkok in particular, and look at the, the local newspapers or watch TV, like I was doing, I I started noticing that that photos of criminals and policing uh, in general took up a lot of uh, real estate on the uh, front pages of the local papers, and that was something that always kind of stuck with me about about the media um, and some of the images that were particularly uh, interesting to me. One was that a lot of it was particularly um, were violent images I felt in some ways uh, or depictions of violence, but in this uh, oddly controlled manner because there were always police kind of in the, in the frame um, and with these people who are, are um, alleged criminals doing things like showing, like shooting somebody or at least in the act of showing somebody how to shoot somebody. So uh, just being there for a while and, and seeing these images uh, on kind of almost a daily basis kind of got my, int- got me interested in, in this particular topic. Um, and then what happened was I, I eventually would go back to, to graduate school to do my, my PhD. And while I was um, doing my degree, I was lucky enough to work with a couple of people who were, one was a historian of law by advisor, Tamara Luce. Um, and then the other person I worked with was an anthropologist, is an anthropologist of the legal system and kind of shaped, kind of further refined my interest in, in, uh, criminal uh, process, I guess. And so I started thinking again about what to do for, for a project and those images kept on coming back to me. Um, so I thought I'd try to investigate kind of where they came from in the sense of historical sense. So how did they start? Why did the police start doing these things and why did they become so prominent um, in the press? Um, so that's kind of where I, I got started with the, with the project. And along the way, the project kind of uh, took a life of its own and it ended up 
um, as you, if you read the book towards the last chapter, it's sort of a different, uh, it moves a bit away from, from policing per se to something else that I, I feel is, is related, even if only tangentially, um, to the, to the work that I started with, which was how police officers and uh, other people involved in the legal system there visualize or, or bring to life these crimes that, that happened in the past. Well, I, I think the the work is really outstanding in the way that it does bring a number of of layers or, or levels together. One that you're alluding to already is just it, it's a really a rich and tremendously well researched historical account of understudied institutions and practices. But one of the other things that you you say in the beginning of the book that you're trying to do that I think you allude to already and that you succeed in my do, my view in, in doing very well is in writing an epistemological history of a specific category of action called crime, to use your terms. What is an epistemological history and how does it differ from a, a, a history in the conventional sense? And, and why does this category of crime call for that approach? Uh, right. So uh, actually, sometimes when I look back at the language I use, I'm a little bit embarrassed. That term is from Lorraine Dastin, who is a historian of science. And a lot of her work uh, actually inspired kind of the, the approach or the method that I took in dealing with the materials that I had. Um, so uh, Professor Dastin is interested in this idea of objectivity um, and how that the idea of objectivity develops over time, particularly in Europe. Um, and she looks at different materials um, to kind of or scientific practices and how they start to represent things um, and how certain types of visualizations are, are become connected with this idea of impartiality or, or objectivity over time. Um, so again, those are things that I was looking at, um, while, while trying to conceptualize how to, to go forward with my project. Um, so when I started thinking again about these images that I saw in the papers, um, and then later in the archives, uh, and, and police documents, I wanted to think about why, what, what was it exactly about these things, these, these images, these artifacts that, that people took them to be legitimate or objective factual representations of things that had happened in the past. So in that sense, um, I, I kind of drew the term from, from Professor Dastin's work in the sense that I was trying to be interested in how the history of how people represent things or events or ideas in these very, uh, in a tangible way uh, and how that changes over time and looking at the kind of patterns or practices um, the, f- the sort of um, forms or whatever that come about over time, where they come from and why some practices or, or ways of portraying things start to take on the idea of, of truth and, and not others. So that's kind of where I started what, um, from, just kind of from that literature in the, I guess what people call now STS, you know, the science and technology studies field. Um, and I tried to take some of that in crafting a method or approach to studying the media and, and the legal system in Thailand. I just felt that it was a little bit more applicable than just doing maybe a straight institutional history of the police um, mm. in this sense. So you mentioned Dustin and also uh, Tamara Luce, your, your supervisor, and I'm sure anyone familiar with her work will see uh, her influence in this book as well. Is there anybody else whose work was uh, important for you in, in thinking through the material you were working with as you proceeded? 
Yeah, uh, a number of people. Again, the other um, Annalise Riles with the uh, also on my my dissertation committee when I was doing the initial research. I mean, that seems so long ago, but they the the her work uh, mostly in finance actually, and the materiality of the things that say bankers or traders use on the floor um, of a uh, of an exchange, and how those things or how people interact with their artifacts sort of influence the way they think. Um, about what they do was really influential to the way I thought about, again, these pictures. Uh, I wanted to think about what the police were doing, actually how they interacted with their images and, and the people, the suspects, and, and so on and so forth to create these images. So that her work and the work she introduced me to had a lot of influence. And there's one other person who's also a professor um, at Cornell. His name is Michael Lynch. Uh, I never worked with him, but he did a lot of work in terms of scientific representation um, and how, say, for example, naturalists who are studying birds or lizards go out um, and start diagramming, say, the natural habitat of, say, a, a particular type of lizard or something like that. And, and in the practice of uh, creating these diagrams or these, these maps um, of a territory, they are, they're already importing certain assumptions into the idea of space um, and territory that about these particular lizards or whatever um, into into the image itself. So, and I felt that maybe that was something that if I started with that or thought about that when I thought about these pictures about crime scene mappings and things like that, um, I thought I'd be able to get at some of the underlying assumptions um, that that go into what makes a good map or what makes a certain map. Uh, justifiable as evidence in a, in a court of law versus some other sort of diagram or image or representation. Um, so those are the kinds of things that I, I that kind of influenced the way I thought about the material. Um, and just going again back to the book, one of the things I wanted to do, again, not just, just produce this history about these images or the police itself, but was try to come up with a way or a method of dealing with visual sources as a historian that um, wasn't just using the, the images to support something that I had come up with already, but I wanted to um, try to work with them in a, in a way that thought was would be productive um, to the material or do justification to this material. And you you developed that method over the five chapters that are the body of the book, working through well, first of all uh, the really the invention of the category of crime in Thailand, then dealing with new technologies with new innovations with the emergence of a new lexicon um, associated with crime uh, we're going to work through as much of it as we can in the limited time we have available, but maybe a good way to start would be with a specific case and to do that. Uh, perhaps we can take a look at the case of the Sherry Ann Duncan, which you weave throughout the book from one chapter to the next. Uh, what right. was that case? Uh, what was it about? And why do you keep returning to it throughout the text to illustrate the larger points that you're making in the book? Uh, let me just start with the case, I guess. The, the case is there was the, this is in 1986. Um, correct me if I'm misremembering that. There was a, a Thai American lady, a young woman, uh, living in Bangkok, who was uh, basically kidnapped after school one day and um, murdered. And this was a very high-profile case at the time. Um, the police did move very, very quickly, and they arrested um, actually five people at first, and then one person they they had to release. 
um, I guess because of lack of evidence or, or something like that. And uh, they they accuse or they charge these four people of, of um, having kidnapped um, Sherry Ann Duncan and uh, murdering her. And this case again uh, went through the through the some provincial court in Smuprakan, um outside of Bangkok, and the court found the four defendants guilty, and then they were sentenced uh, to death. Um, the trial itself took quite a, a long time, um, and also the appeals. And what happened during the course of the uh, appeals was that um, uh, I think one of the uh, defendants, they were all basically kept in prison at the time, had died, and another one contracted a disease. He would eventually die. Um, and the the irony of it all is at the end, when the court finally reached the Santika in, in Thailand, the, or the um, final sort of supreme Court of Appeals, um, the four men were basically acquitted, and that there was no nothing really, no evidence really connecting them to that murder, and that they had been basically scapegoated. So that's kind of just a, the case uh, in a nutshell. But what what drew me to it again? I had nothing. I wasn't thinking about this case at all. It wasn't something that I I was interested in or had even thought about when I started doing this project, but. By chance, I was sitting in the, um, the library and museum of the attorney general's office at, uh, in Bangkok. And uh, what happened was that they, they keep the records uh, from this case and several other very prominent cases there. And uh, they let me look at some of the uh, materials. So I started flipping through it. And again, what struck me was these images. And this was, I couldn't reproduce them in the book because they, in the end, were, uh, changed their mind and didn't let me use the images. But they have images of these reenactments of of the police taking these four suspects out and reenacting the, the kidnapping of Sherry Ann Duncan. And that was used in the court case to to um, kind of connect these individuals to the crime and allow the, the trial to proceed. And if you look at that set of documents, what happens is years later when uh, I think three other uh, suspects or a new set of suspects are taken to a second trial for the same murder, uh, you see again images of these reenactments, and what you have is the the key witness in the first trial, this man named Bamun, who had told the police initially that he had seen these four men uh, t- basically taking this woman uh, Sherry Ann from the back of a building in, in central Bangkok, and reenacting that his testimony. Right in the second case, you see him again doing another reenactment, this time basically showing a different set of police where he had kind of had a meeting with. Um, investigators in the in the first trial, where they basically agreed on what he would sh- say and uh, what he would do, basically. So those these two images, these two different reenactments, uh, kind of sat with me the whole time I was thinking through the project, and because I felt like here here we have these images that were taken to be truthful or uh, uh, representations of this testimony of these of the past as documentation of the past that was admitted to into the legal system, and, and yet they're completely different, and one disproves the other in, in this kind of very interesting way. So I, I felt like this particular case was, and these images in particular, uh, and the way this case played out uh, was a one good way of framing kind of what I wanted to say about about these images and these reenactments that, that I cover uh, a bit in the book. So I, I thought that was a, just a it's a it's a telling example or a telling case I think 
uh, about what happens and about police processes in general. And was there something about, uh, again, to use a term which I think is yours, correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, uh, the, the aesthetic rules for the production of facts about the crime in that case that yeah. go to the larger arguments that you're making in the book, specifically to their, their relationship to diagrammatic representations of crime? Yeah, I think so. Basically, when I started looking at these images, um, if you again, I, I really feel one of the biggest disappointments I have was not being able to reproduce those images in the book. Uh, if you look at them, there's a series of photographs from both cases uh, and maps, and they are produced in a way that is very sort of formulaic. And uh, they have certain I mean, this is true everywhere, I suppose, in the legal system, but they have certain elements that are required, like uh, signature at a certain location, scale, time frame. Um, and also the way that I think that the suspects are, are kind of positioned and posed in relation to the camera, um, kind of demonstrating certain actions that they've done um, in a very overt way. And again, those those images were, I mean, I just found that looking at them and then looking at the ones that you would see every day or, or regularly in the newspapers, um, I started thinking about patterns and about whether or not there were tropes or um, things that the police may be not completely aware of uh, and, and is completely conscious of, but but tried to uh, repeat over and over whenever they produce these kinds of images um, or, or maps and things. And so I, I thought about that and I went back and I tried to trace uh, through historical records in the archives, kind of where where these conventions came from. Why why a certain scale or why a certain positioning? Where did these come from? Why do these reenactments in, in the public at certain times? Um, and I find that these things you can kind of start to trace it. It's it's a little bit difficult because the archival record is spotty, um, but you can start to trace. I think uh, where certain ideas come from. Um, what a map looks like, for example, or why. Why are the suspects typically asked to look into a camera and so on and so forth when they're reenacting their crimes? So again, yeah, that case, uh, and if you look at those images, um, was what sort of got me thinking about the patterns, uh, the sort of visual patterns um, that, that were consistent throughout a lot of the visual evidence or material evidence that the police were producing over the last I don't know, 50, 60 years. Or more, actually. So let's see if we can uh, identify those patterns uh, in some of the chapters of the book, and we'll come back to questions of reenactment and mapping shortly. But before we do that, we need to start in the the Kingdom of Crime, which is the first chapter of the book. Um, congratulations on the memorable title, which uh, you, you might like to lock it in for movie rights before Scorsese <laughs> or somebody gets it. Um, what and when was this kingdom of crime and why does it matter for the story that you're telling about Thailand in later periods? Okay. So actually, uh, yeah, the first chapter, um, first substantial chapter after the introduction is about this kind of period where I, I want to do this sort of historian um historian's task of kind of setting the context of what I'm going to talk about in the rest of the book. And again, just looking through the archives in the late fifth reign or the, I can say the 1890s and the, the first decade or two decades of the of 20th century through, again, the popular press I was interested in, in newspaper reports primarily at that time. Um, you start to see just a number of things like crime reports, um, consistent uh, crime reports, um, and so I started thinking, well, this is 
this is an interesting uh, trend, it seems to be. I don't know if there's an uptick in crime or if there's just more reporting in crime. Um, but you start to see this violent crime, in, in particular robberies, assaults, um, uh, banditry, and so on and so forth, in this particular period of time. And then you start to see in, in the archival records, sort of the government documents, the Ministry of uh, the Capital records and police records, you start to see a sort of parallel concern with what what they see is an increase in the number of, of violent crimes, in particular in the central region. And uh, what happens is this, this uptick in crime causes, I think, or is sort of the backdrop of, of some of what's going on in terms of what drives police reform um, in the kingdom. At least it's, it's sort of the rationale for why a modern police force needs to be established um, and why this police force needs to be trained in a specific way um, to deal with um, the, the problems that the kingdom is, is facing at that period of time. And the, t- the title of the chapter, Kingdom of Crime, is actually from, uh, not I didn't make that one up, actually. It's from the press. Um, in When they're reporting uh, about the crime uh, in this particular period, they, they start to refer to to the country as a sort of a kingdom of crime, right? And a Jack or or bandits, if you want to. Um, I've kind of translated loosely their, uh, their, their term. So in that sense, it seems to be a realization that, that something is going on that has to do with uh, this increase in, in violent crime. And that, I mean, has to do a lot, I think, with sort of the changes that are going on, sort of the, let's we can call it modernization, or the, yeah, there's economic changes, political changes going on at the time. Um, and then that leads the, the state to try to figure out what to do. Um, about this this particular problem, and again, that leads us to the to the police and the creation of this the modern police and um, the introduction of these the practices that I'm interested in later, like mapping and taking pictures and so on. And, and one of the interesting characteristics of the story that you're telling in this chapter is how all right we have this concern with criminality emerging, but then to deal with it or partly. In a, in a co-productive manner, we find the uh, kingdom bringing professionals from the neighboring European colonies, especially from uh, Dutch professionals and British professionals to come in and help in establishing and managing the police force in its various components at that time. So... I suppose there are epistemological questions here for an epistemological historian, right, which you alluded to already. (laughs) How much of this crime problem can be understood or situated in its facticity and how much of it is a product of the local elites' imaginations and inventions and the ideas that the Europeans bring with them from colonies in the adjacent parts of Southeast Asia? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a really good um, question. I I think in this chapter that's kind of what I wanted to show is what, like how you I think you phrased it about this kind of their, their, these that as the police and as the uh, officials of the state are trying to figure out ways of dealing with this perceived rising crime and I think actually a real rising crime they they do import these methods as you mentioned a lot of the the metropolitan police are basically run by British. Um, colonial officials uh, seconded from 
from India, British India. Um, and they bring with them these, these methods like um, producing tables, writing reports, and so on and so forth. And these are stressed by these, these British officers who are there to set up the police and train them. And in, in the process, I think, of documenting uh, crime in this particular ways, especially in, through statistical tables, which you start to see at this period, actually in the first decade probably, um, of the 20th century, all of a sudden I think you've, the state starts to have something concrete and something solid to see is that this, is, uh, this crime is real, right? This violence is real, and, and that makes these threat to this, you know, the consolidating Thai state at the point, uh, at this point, um, something tangible and maybe something that that in that sense can be managed. And the, the convenient thing for for the state at this point is that is that these methods um, are also seen by these you know, the, the foreign uh, uh, consultants, if you will, um, as kind of modern and up to date. So you know, kind of deal with a couple of things. At the same time, right, you, you get to you get a sense that if you're a state official, that you're dealing with these crime and this rampant crime, even as you're producing it with these methods that you that you're using. But you also um, in showing mastery of these methods, uh, these new kind of detective methods, you demonstrate basically to the um, colonial powers in the region that you, you can do this, that you are also modern and up to date uh, in your in your legal system. So. Um, I tried to get at that a little bit in, in that chapter, uh, in the first chapter. Maybe very briefly, in addition to, to that point, I'd be interested to hear about the distinction between the metropolitan and the provincial police and whether there's a, um, there's a, a, a bifurcation of sorts between these two in the same way that we might think about the metropolitan police in the British metropole as against the kind of policing for the maintenance of order of the sort that was practiced in the mm. colony of yeah, India that you mentioned already. Right. Yeah. There. So in the beginning, there are two, basically two separate um, police forces, right? There was the metropolitan police, which is based in, in Bangkok. Um, and again, this is basically established and run primarily by British uh, officers um, at the time and starting in the uh, 1860s, actually. And then that goes through a series of reforms, I think, once again in the 1880s under Dula, and then uh, another series of reforms later on. But they, this, the Bangkok police are a smaller unit, and they're basically there to deal with sort of urban crimes, um, banditry, robbery, things like that, gambling, um, prostitution. They do a lot of... Um, they deal with vice uh, in the city. Um, they're also at the beginning there to kind of, uh, they pick up litter and, and do a number of tasks, right? Uh, and this group actually is, I think, the group that first really is introduced to the idea of scientific policing. Um, again, maybe just through the, the officers that were brought in um, who emphasized these uh, techniques that were being developed in places like uh, Europe and, and uh, the U.S., so, so the, you have the Metropolitan Police and it's running sort of on its own, who it has its own training program um, and its own sort of mission and territory that it covers. Um, the Provincial Police are not established until much later. And the model for that, uh, for the Provincial Police, are the French uh, gendarmes, right? Um, and in that sense, it's the Provincial Police are slightly more, I guess, uh, 
military or militaristic in in the nature in their nature and some of the the archival documents show that also there's some suggestion that this this provincial police was also set up because of um things that happened after the uh, 1890s in which the there was an agreement between the french and the and the siamese government um in bangkok that there would be a, a zone where the thai military could not enter near the mekong river and one way to get around that was basically to kind of create this police force, kind of semi-militaristic police force that would go out and kind of could be sent out to the provinces or different locations and to suppress banditry. Um, but again, they were doing patrols and dealing with banditry and they were basically um, put under the, the authority of um, local uh local leaders, uh, local headmen. So their their existence and their mode of operation was quite different from that of the Metropolitan Police in, 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 the, in Bangkok. Well, let's come back to Bangkok and the, uh, the scientific policing, which is really the subject of the discussion in the second chapter. Uh, what, what kind of new technologies became um, uh, the, the tools and the knowledge producers for this scientific policing and what were their associated visual practices? So, I mean, the, the common things uh, really that were being promoted throughout Europe and the U.S. as being kind of cutting edge, fingerprints primarily was, was a big thing. Uh, they had this problem evidently with recidivism um, that uh, that you hear this refrain throughout in, in a lot of the uh, police documents that the British officers who were in charge felt like they couldn't really identify who was who and that they kept on arresting people, uh, putting them in jail and then releasing them and then arresting them again. Um, and this was a, a, a problem for them, this idea of trying to identify the, the local population, I guess, or who's a criminal. So fingerprinting was one of the key ideas that was brought in um, because it was felt that this was a unique identifier that could, uh, you know, scientific in nature that could help the police reduce um, recidivism and basically kind of help them identify uh, criminals among the population. So you know, fingerprinting was was uh, something that was brought in. Um, crime scene mapping, again, was brought in as sort of a, a, a technique for describing and uh, representing the crime scene. Again, that's pretty new because in previous, basically prior to the early 20th century, they I couldn't find any evidence of, of map making or the idea of even having a crime scene. Um, and not just in Thailand, but also in Europe, you can see it in the literature there, in the police literature in places like France and in, in the UK. Um, so that's brought in also things like statistics, and what uh, Eric Lawson, who was the British uh, head of the Metropolitan Police for in the first few years of the uh, 20th century, actually was also very keen on um, the police report, basically. He wanted every station uh, to have um, journals and logs where, where the officers would write a um, paragraph or two or, or more detail about their the crimes that were being reported and about their investigations because people weren't doing that. There was no, there was no practice and no notion of having to, to record your investigation or sort of describe crimes um, uh, as you investigated them. So those are a number of things that were brought in uh, in, in the early 20th century, late, 
late 19th, early 20th century. And then, of course, uh, photography comes in as well, but it takes a little bit longer in the sense that the police don't really get in-house um, photography unit until, uh, I think, again, again, sorry, the, the second decade of the, um, maybe the third, beginning of the third decade of the um, uh, of the 20th century. So, um, but photography, yes, uh, is another one of these techniques and, and ways of representing crime and criminals uh, that, that's ushered in and developed slowly. One of the interesting points you make about mapping in um, the third chapter concerns uh, the relationship between space and time. And you talk about a, a chronotype of, um, of crime in Thailand. Could you expand on that point yeah. a little bit? Uh, how, what, how is it that mapping isn't just about the visual representation of space, but also has a temporal element? Right. Okay. So that, that chapter actually, this is again, um, something I had a difficulty writing because I wasn't sure exactly how to deal with this material, um, in, in a, in interesting kind of productive ways. Um, but again, the, one of the practices that's introduced is mapping. And again, you know, if you read, uh, books on Thailand and about, um, the history of Thailand, there's always this talk about how in Thailand there's different ideas of what space is and how it's not just empty. Things don't just happen in it. You know, space has certain characteristics. It's associated with certain, with good luck or, or, or bad luck or certain beings like serpents and nagas and things like that. Um, and these inform the way that people think about the world and also their actions, right? Um, what to do on certain day. Uh, in certain places or where to do certain things and what direction to move and so on and so forth. But I thought that what happens with this particular type of mapping that's introduced, again, it's problematic because in the beginning, nobody really knows how to do this in the police force, right? So nobody actually knows how to map. They don't know this particular perspective, where it comes from, how to, how to draw it. And that's taught um, in police academy over time. And what I, I found was there are certain assumptions, I think, that, this type of crime scene map has about the way space is um, or the nature of space, right. As being empty, as being sort of a stage that is uniform and that can be plotted out in a grid um, and placed on, on this piece of paper and represents these, these spaces in a specific way. Um, and what happens, I think in that map with, if you, Think about that notion of space, and I think you can, and and the way that the police use it, uh, especially when they do um, when they draw maps and use them diagrammatically by drawing arrows and um, other sorts of notations. They're indicating also that that this mapping has to do with a particular way that time unfolds, um, that these actions take place in this static sort of space that they've mapped out uh, over over time, right? And again, I think that was something that was is different from the way or different ways of conceiving how space is or the nature of space is and how time works in um, in non kind of crime scene map type spaces. So I, I wanted to kind of show um, that the police, uh, when they create these maps, are, are working with a sense or they've imported this sort of sense of I don't know if you want to call it modern clock time and modern um, Cartesian space, I guess, um, 
without maybe consciously knowing that they've done so, right? Again, this is just importing certain assumptions about space and time um, through a practice that they've been asked to do while they investigate um, a particular crime. So in this way, what you see is these certain assumptions that may be associated with, say, Europe or, or the West creep in through everyday practice, right? So sometimes if you're looking at how uh, a culture's sense of time or space changes over time, it's not always um, overtly like ideological or this is, we're going to do it this way or, and, and everything else is old and superstitious. There's no nagas in the ground and so on and so forth. But it's sort of a, a more subtle way of, of introducing new ways of thinking about space and time. And in these spaces and times, the way the reason I use chronotope uh, from Bakhtin in literature studies is that I felt like this particular genre, the way of thinking about crime or the way the police think about crime is associated with a specific way of thinking about time and space that is different from the way that people had thought about time and space, say, um, when they're plowing or when they're when they're working the fields. Right. Um, so these different activities have different ways of, of conceptualizing time and space that work for them. So when the police write these reports and create these maps, I think they're producing this, 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 this space and this time um, that that isn't there otherwise. I'm not I, sure if that has a lot of a long-winded answer. Sorry about that. Not at all. And I th I think that really uh, gets to something else about this part of the book that was interesting and yeah. important to me, and that is that. On the one hand, you're, you're speaking to features of the way that these new technologies intersected with the quite unusual conditions in Thailand compared to its counterparts in Southeast Asia that were subject to colonial police forces, not according to their own terms, not even according to the terms of their uh, elites, at least not in the first instance. And what it leads to is really a question of, well, how much is Thailand an instance of the development of police in the modern formal institutional sense as we understand it? Um, how much are you speaking back to and making comparisons with practices in uh, other settings around the world? And how much is something that for want of a better way of putting it, is quintessentially Thai that's emerging mm, yeah. um, out of these formations that you're documenting. Yeah, I, I that one's actually it's quite it's a difficult question. The last part about what is quintessentially Thai about this, I when I presented some of this work in the past, that that it, it comes up a lot, and I've never actually been able to address it in a way that I'm even satisfied with. But let me maybe get back to the first part of the your question was about um, how much, I guess, is the development of the police force here an instance of a, a broader trend. I think I think there's a lot of that, too. And I think that's kind of where I, I was thinking in, in the beginning when I was writing this, this book. Um, you see a lot of parallels about the way this police force develops um, and the way that police forces develop scientific policing in in the UK or in America or, or even in other parts of, um, of the region in a sense that uh, some of these practices are, well, most of them, all of them actually now are, are international, right? They're global practices and they're accepted by basically all police forces, modern police forces in the world as the correct way of doing these, of going about investigating crime. In that sense, um, 
At a very simple level, yes, the, the kind of development of the police force in, in Siam is, is, has a lot of parallels and similarities to the development of the police in other places. Um, so again, if I was looking at um, books on the development of the scientific policing in France, for instance, um, and you know, the officers there who were at the forefront of sort of forensic policing had similar uh, complaints about the police forces in, in, in that country. For example, they would say that nobody goes out to the crime scene in France. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to map. Some of them don't know how to read. And those complaints are basically echoed almost word for word in the same type of language, the same type of rhetoric in, in uh, Bangkok. Um, and so in that sense, the development is, is very similar to all these other forces. There are some other similarities in the sense that there's some, uh, uh, in, in the archives, there's some mention uh, or references to the fact that this, that the police should be modern. And this is a good thing to show basically the rest of the world that Sayan can kind of police itself and, and has a, a modern justice legal system. Um, and again, you know, if you read about the, say the police in Shanghai, I was reading Fred Wakeman's uh, book on policing Shanghai that, you know, similar there, there was a, a sector of Shanghai that was not run by say the British or the German or the French or the, um, colonial um, police. And then they also saw the development of a modern police force as sort of a, a way of demonstrating to the colonial um, powers that they, they too were, were modern. Right. So again, you have this again, parallel idea in, in these, in Shanghai and, and Bangkok, and this is going on, but then, what you see happening over time is when these practices come in, especially, say, with photography and then this, this modus operandi thing, which later becomes sort of a, a reenactment process that we see now, what we started this discussion about with. Um, you, you, I don't necessarily see the same type of uh, evolution of, of this, say, a particular practice of the use of photography and video in in places like the U.S. or or, or the U.K. Um, in the same manner, and it I, not that they they don't do reenactments uh, in these other places, but they don't become as prominent, I think, in in the in the mass media as they the way they do in in Thailand. Um, and I know some. I don't know if that's necessarily quintessentially Thai uh, per se. Uh, but I have had comments in the past when I, again, when I presented material that a lot of people have said to me that they feel this, this is tied in the sense that it leads back to some tradition of how justice was enacted uh, in the past, right? In say the 19th century or, or even earlier that, that people, when they had disagreements or when something happens in a, in a rural setting, that they would get together and there would be a mediator and things would be discussed. Maybe a confession would have to be made public and a public apology would be, have to be made. Um, and this would sort of bring equilibrium, social equilibrium back to, to the community. Um, so there's some sense, and I, I've never seen it archivally or documented in any concrete way, but, you know, potentially this, the way that the use of photography and video has combined with like the idea of the confession into this public spectacle may have some roots in sort of uh, 19th century or earlier um, practices in terms of mediation and, and public apologies. Um, 
So it's, it, there is some of that that could be possible. But again, I haven't seen any sort of archival documentation that that is the case, that anybody thinks of the reenactment in, the, in those terms. Well, in the few minutes that, that, we, have, um, that we have remaining, let's turn back to reenactment yeah. and uh, okay. because you're already on the topic. And you also mentioned modus operandi. So uh, right. can you expand a little bit on the remark you made about modus operandi? Uh, what is it? Uh, why does it matter for how we get from a certain way of visualizing crime through codification and classification and predictive uh, technologies to the kinds of uh, reenactment that are then photographed and slapped on the front of the newspapers in Bangkok that led you into the topic in the first place. Okay, right. So again, in the um, early 20th century, there the officers around the world are, are trying to figure out ways, what they, you know, scientific ways of uh, dealing with with crime and criminals. And so this British officer, um, and then later an American officer, uh, August Vollmer, in um, California, they come up with this way called the modus operandi, and they try basically uh, try to catalog and come up with a, a way of cataloging different kinds of patterns uh, of crime, right? Uh, the types of weapons that are used, the time of day that um, a crime takes place, um, the, uh, the, the race uh, of, a crim of a suspected criminal, and they, they basically come up with a code and they create a formula uh, for this, for these to to um, articulate these patterns, right? And they feel like uh, the idea is that every time another crime happens, um, that they can go back and try to fit it to a formula or a pattern that they've they've uh, recorded in the past, and that would lead them to uh, the criminal right? and help them basically uh, arrest this criminal based on their activities and their the way they've operated in the past right that they could figure out uh, from these patterns um, who the culprit is uh, and they would create this huge archive of these patterns of, of and formulas right so that was something uh, again anecdotally in, in a number of police records uh, comes to thailand in um, 1929 um, if i'm not mistaken that was the, the year um and it, there isn't a lot of evidence from that period of, of exactly how it came in or what the Thai police actually did with the method. But there is some evidence later on by the uh, 40s that, that the police were doing these, uh, practicing modus operandi, the modus operandi, um, by trying to record patterns and things like that and use it to predict kind of where the next crime might happen or who, this, who the criminal might be. Um, and again, that was that was a separate process that was seen as somehow scientific and rational and, and objective. Um, and then towards the middle of the century, there's um, sort of this other demand or certain uh, trends that are going on in the legal system where, and this has to go back to the confession part, right? Uh, the police arresting people and they're bringing them to their trial these people to court uh, for trial. And then the court is then dismissing some of the cases because they don't feel like there's any evidence or uh, that the police did not use force to extract a convention confession, or sometimes a, a suspect would um, change their testimony uh, in the court as opposed to when they're talking to the police. Um, so there's, there's a need imposed basically through the legal system for the police to somehow prove 
that they have um, obtained a confession voluntarily. Um, so these things over time, this this need um, and this the modus operandi has sort of become confused over time in a sense that um, the police then, they had already been kind of documenting crime scenes and so on and so forth. They start taking uh, their suspects to scene of the crime um, under the kind of aegis of doing uh, a reenactment, right? Show us, demonstrate your confession, basically, is what they want the suspects to do. And then they would take pictures, record it, and then they would have the suspect sign off that this was voluntarily and uh, obtained and it was truthful. And then this, this, these two processes start becoming intertwined, uh, intertwined um, so that now, even when I talked to the police officers when I was doing this project, they would kind of confuse the two, um, the idea of this kind of predictive cataloging of patterns and this other practice of just recording confessions or demonstrations of confessions. Um, and what, ha- what happens, I think, is really that this sort of scientific, the sense of being objective and scientific that goes along with the modus operandi is sort of transferred to this other um, process of recording a confession. Um, so you have, you have these two practices coming together and then producing this thing that you do see in the newspapers and in the press now. Um, and so that the police officers, you know, they call it different names. They refer more or less to the same, to these two different practices as the same thing. And they see it as really legitimate, um, practice that is useful, um, in the, in the legal system. And, uh, you know, when I do talk to lawyers and other people who are not tied, they're kind of aghast that this, this could happen, but, um, it, it's seen as, it's very, um, uh, practical and productive, uh, for, for the cases there. And the conflation so of kind the, of the two. And so I just got to say that, uh, that the conflation of the two is interesting and important also because, as you say, uh, I think the point you make is, is a very powerful one, is that there's really a reversal of the logic between the modus operandi or the crime scene reconstruction and the reenactment. So you talk about the crime scene as being absent of the suspect, um, a catalogue of effects without agents, um, patterns without explanations, whereas in the reenactment, the accused is right there at the centre of the scene and you begin with the suspect and you end up by showing the effects of their actions. So uh, that's really the significance of the conflation of the two is in this the the the, the, log, the tension yeah. between the logic of the two right no absolutely right it's just like it's complete reversal basically it's again looking for one one process or at least the way it started and was intended was to look for these patterns but in the end it's it's this you know let, let's take this suspect in and make him show us what he did and then um it, to me it's still very kind of troubling to think about about that process as being somehow it's gained this air of science, objectivity and scientificness, uh, for lack of a better word, and that somehow legitimates it in, in the legal process is is disturbing for me. And and it's in this period from the 1950s onwards when reenactment really uh, comes into its own that the press also play an increasingly significant role in the 
production of knowledge about crime. Right. And really, they have a very major part, by your account, in reenactments becoming a significant part of the legal process at all. Can you right. um, expand on, on that aspect of the, um, of the material in the book a little bit more before we close? Yeah, um, absolutely. So um, towards the end of the book, I, again, this is where I started with through the project, and this was these pictures are always in the newspapers. And what is what is the press, or what are the other um, I don't, don't want to say discourses, or other agencies, or institutions, or actors in the world have to do with the legal process? Right? Is it should it only be like lawyers and police officers and so on and so forth producing this knowledge about crime? Um, but you know the way that uh, the media works is they, they need to sell papers and they learn very early on just the, the development of the press is that crime stories sell papers, right? Um, sensational, sensational crime stories. sell papers. And when you have photographs of, of crime and criminals, that's even better, right? Cause you know, people that'll draw people's eyes to your front pages and maybe they buy your paper. So what happens, um, especially during the 1950s, as you, as you mentioned, um, you start to see a lot more sort of a, an expansion in these weekly magazines um, that are that you typically have like a, a woman uh, on the cover or something like that. And inside there's a mix of stories and a lot of it sensational crime stories and police reports. So at that, you know, you have you have the media becoming the, pr the print media becoming more visual, a bit more, more visual media. And then you have um, these stories that that attract readers so what you have then is you have reporters um, starting to sort of embed themselves into police stations or, or follow along with police officers and working more closely with police officers to get stories and so you have this um, sort of intermixing between the media and the demands of the media to sell papers um, and kind of spice up their stories with this so uh, you know ideally would be a scientific or objective criminal investigation process to find out, you know, who did what. Um, and those two things come together again, yeah, in the, in the mid to late fifties and really in, by the sixties, it's sort of the pattern is established even, even the fifties um, that there is this very close relationship between these two uh, uh, institutions in, in Thailand. And if you go to the, like the main police station now in Bangkok in, in, um, near Chitlong, you, you know, that they have a little waiting room for the press, right? They have special setup, you know, with a, you know, coffee and tea or whatever. So, it, you know, the, the relationship is very close. And um, I think what's interesting for me, and this goes back further when I was thinking more about detective novels and, and crime maps and things like that, there was no, because there was no real tradition of what these things should look like, these visualizations should look like, all these different actors, whether it's the, the media, uh, real crime TV or whatever, or in the past, maybe detective novels with, with illustrations, they start to inform police practice, right? So, you know, what a map looks like, that really comes through through some of the translations of early detective novels, um, Edgar Allan Poe's novel, for example, uh, or the Rue uh, Morgue. Um, and then you have newspapers who who, who might, you know, have a different idea of what a crime scene ought to look like. And again, the police start to, um, you know, maybe not consciously, but, but it's there. I think they, they start to uh, produce um, images that, that they know will appear in certain ways and, and serve multiple purposes. Now one is, you know, to demonstrate their efficiency in the press, uh, 
the media sells papers with them. And then also this happens to work as proof of a voluntary confession. So this particular, uh, these particular images of, of reenactments and confessions uh, happen to um, be the kind of point at which all these different forces are, are expressing themselves. And I think that's why you get some of the more s- sort of scandalous images that you do get now, like the one I have, I have one on the cover um, showing the, of the book, showing a police officer telling the suspect, a murder suspect to look into the camera. Right. Um, and it has to do with this sort of directorship that in order to, to satisfy all these different me- needs and imperatives of the legal system and also of the media. I'm so glad you mentioned that image because I encourage everyone who's listening to take a look at it. It really captures in so many ways so many of the elements of the book. Um, It it really is um, a wonderful cover shot. And, of course, you discuss it in the book as well. It's not just there for illustrative purposes. Um, Samson, there are so many other contents of the book that I would like to to go into. Um, we haven't even had the chance to speak about the the last chapter on conspiracy, but I'm af- afraid we're going to have to leave uh, Dark Hands and, and Godfathers to listeners uh, to, to go and pick up a copy of the book for themselves and see and the interesting turn that that chapter takes, which uh, leads you again, in a somewhat different direction from the contents of the previous chapters. But as we are really out of time, I'd I'd like to close with our customary question and ask you, uh, what have you been working on since you finished the research for the book? And uh, what can we look forward to from you next? Okay, yeah, I've I've actually been working um, on a project, sort of a cultural history of capitalism, also early 20th century, um, but through the lens of financial crimes, uh, so counterfeit money, uh, bank scandals, um, kind of schemes and, and things. And I'm interested, again, in a, in a parallel way of looking at these mater- uh, things like checks and ledgers and, and money, paper money, looking at their material aspects and kind of how people represent and articulate ideas like uh, value or, or profit. Uh, actually, that's sort of, I think, again, the way crime is produced through the, the practices. Certain ideas, I, I believe, so far in my initial research are sort of similarly produced um, in the way that people uh, write checks or use checks or, or visualize uh, their accounts. Um, and this, again, are, these practices are, are sort of changing and developing over the early 20th century. So I'm looking at uh, how people use these different techniques in finance to kind of enrich themselves uh, over that period. So I've got a couple of things like a a great uh, bankruptcy case in in 1913 and some counterfeiting stuff that I'm working on right now that hopefully will um, over, (laughs) hopefully not too long, uh, end up in, in another more substantial project. And that, and that material just keeps on coming too. So I'm sure yeah, you've exactly. chosen a topic that you're not going to have any difficulty finding uh, yeah. stuff to work with. Yeah. Um, perhaps exactly. we'll have to save a uh, discussion about the sources and uh, how you went about using them for uh, the next occasion that we speak when, um, when that next monograph comes along. But in the meantime, uh, Samson Lim, I'd, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your new book, Sayam's New Detectives. Thank you very much, Nick. I really enjoyed this conversation. 
And uh, thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. And if you're doing so via the website, don't forget that this and all of the other episodes on the channel are also available for download and can be streamed via iTunes. Monkey! Hey, thank God, see you at the tin of both. Monkey! Hey, thank God, see you at the tin of both. Monkey!